We hope you enjoy this episode from our series, Famous Fates. It's about the impactful lives and shocking deaths of history's most influential people. To hear even more episodes each week, subscribe to Famous Fates exclusively on Spotify. Please, please pick up the phone. Hello? 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 Who is this? It's Monica. Monica? I told you not to call me before noon after a gig. What time is it? It doesn't matter. What's going on? I'm at my apartment. Jimmy is here. Monica, I don't give a damn where Jimmy is before noon. We were drinking last night, just having some fun, and now he's passed out on my couch. He threw up everywhere. What, you want me to feel sorry for your upholstery? Pour some coffee down his face, slap him around, wake him up. You know, Jimmy, he does this kind of thing. Probably just stoned out of his mind. I I don't. It doesn't look like he's breathing. (laughs) Monica? Monica, snap out of it. You said he's not breathing? I don't. I'm not sure. What the hell are you calling me for, then? (laughs) Hang up and call the ambulance. I don't want any trouble. Are you high? Never mind, don't answer that. Get him to a hospital, Monica. No! But... This is Jimi Hendrix we're talking about. Call the ambulance! Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Famous Fates, a podcast original exclusive to Spotify. Each week, we'll release five fresh episodes centered around a common theme, such as Hollywood icons, influential women, or music legends. In each episode, we'll take a close look at the remarkable life of a different person. With the help of voice actors, we'll dramatize their incredible lives, reimagining their greatest and weakest moments. Then we'll examine their controversial deaths. Some deaths came too soon, some remained shrouded in mystery, and some changed the world forever. Today, we're covering Jimi Hendrix, one of the most influential musicians of the 1960s, and perhaps ever. He redefined the way a guitar could sound, permanently changing the popular music soundscape. Hendrix was a singer, songwriter, innovator, rock god, and tragically, a member of the 27 Club. You can find episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Famous Fates for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find it on Spotify. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Now, back to the life of Jimi Hendrix. Johnny Allen Hendrix was born on November 27, 1942 in Seattle, Washington. Loved the line. His name was Jimmy, not Johnny. Please, Carter, I'm a professional. Jimmy Hendrix's parents originally named him Johnny. <laughs> However, when he was four years old, they renamed him James after his father, who everyone called Al. Okay, now you're messing with me. <laughs> Maybe a little. Okay, but it's true. But Jimmy's father's first name was James, middle name Alan. So why the name change? 
At four years old, no less, isn't that a little late? We don't know for sure, but some historians believe that it was because his mother had an affair with a man named John, and Al hated the name so much he renamed his eldest son in protest. Well, that seems a bit excessive. Well, that was how Jimmy's parents operated. They were a bit unhinged, a pair of alcoholics who fought, broke up, got back together, and started back in on the fighting. Mirroring Hendrix's own struggles with substance abuse later in life. Jimmy and his four younger siblings were scattered to foster care and adoption, with only Jimmy and his brother Leon staying with their biological parents. It was a tumultuous childhood, to say the least. But the one constant throughout Hendrick's life was music. Friends and family noticed early on how fascinated he was with the guitar. When he was still in elementary school, he dragged an old broom around to use as an air guitar. Although he wanted to play the real thing, money was tight in the Hendrix household. And his first instrument was a ukulele he fished out of the dumpster. It only had one string. But that didn't stop Hendrix from playing along with his favorite songs, one note at a time. In fact, for the rest of his life, Hendrix would play everything by ear. He never formally learned to read music. When he was 15, he finally saved up enough to buy himself an acoustic guitar of his own. And immediately formed his first band. A year later, he traded in his acoustic guitar for an electric one. And that's where the legend was truly born. Once Hendrix got his hands on that electric guitar, there was nothing else he wanted to do but practice, day in, day out. And maybe cause a little mischief. When he was 19, he had been caught twice by police while riding in stolen cars. He was given a choice, go to jail or join the army. Hendrix took the latter option. But unfortunately, basic training isn't the best place to hone your guitar skills. And he was constantly being written up for having a poor work ethic. Okay, this time I'm not kidding. Where is it? I don't know what you're talking about, Private Hendricks. You know damn well what I'm talking about. I left it on my bunk this morning. Aw, oh, boys, it looks like we've got a case of a missing guitar on our hands. Whatever will Hendricks do without? Gosh, I don't know. Maybe he'll make it to PT on time for once. <laughs> <laughs> you don't understand. I need it back. Need it, huh? Hendricks, this is the army. What you need is to shape the hell up. And maybe when you do, we'll think about giving Betty Jean back. <laughs> Betty Jean's not the name of the guitar. It's the name of my girl. The guitar's your girlfriend? Yeah, <laughs> Hendrix gave his guitar a lady's name. Ouch. Yeah, the army wasn't really for him. A little more than a year after enlisting, Private Hendrix was given an honorable discharge on the basis of unsuitability. After leaving the army, he went right back into performing, staying nearby his Tennessee army base. That circuit got him into contact with a lot of the big soul, R&B, and blues musicians of the time. But even as he was playing backup to more well-known artists, Hendrix had the flair of an entertainer. Right. It was while he was in Tennessee that he first saw guitarists strumming with their teeth. Yeah. Not to be upstaged, he quickly mastered the gimmick. Later stating that the party trick was a necessity to stay relevant. In his words, imitators left a trail of broken teeth all over the stage. <laughs> Makes me want to call up my dentist just thinking about it. <laughs> no kidding. But Hendrix was no stranger to unusual styles of guitar playing. In fact, he always played his guitar upside down. That's right. Hendrix was left-handed, and while left-handed guitars existed, he didn't like how they sounded. So he simply flipped a right-handed guitar around and restrung it. Cool. His father, incidentally, thought that left-handedness was a sign of the devil. Well, most other people would have had to sell their souls to play like that. But Hendrix had an interesting relationship with performance and religion. 
Most of his beliefs probably came from his grandmother, a former vaudeville dancer named Nora. She instilled in him both a love of the theatrical and a connection to the spiritual. Mm, he attended church with her every Sunday, enraptured by the boisterous Pentecostal services. Later on, he would claim music as his religion, referring to it as electric church. Mm, the kind of religion that everyone, regardless of race, sex, age, or background, could come together and appreciate. But before he could spread that message worldwide, he had to survive the Tennessee circuit with his teeth intact. Right. Maybe it was the teeth, maybe it was his dislike of having to follow the rules of band leaders, but in 1964, Hendrix decided to venture out on his own. He moved from Tennessee to New York, settling down in Harlem, living that starving artist life. Not that he wasn't finding work. While playing the Harlem club circuit, he was recommended to audition for the Isley Brothers' backup band, the IB Specials. They welcomed him in with open arms, and with them, he was featured on his first single, Testify. He toured with a few other backup bands around this time as well, including Little Richard's ensemble. Most of the singles he was featured on barely hit the top 100, or completely failed to chart. And his tardiness and stage antics caused Little Richard to fire him in 1965. But that didn't stop him from working. If anything, it made him more certain that his talent was being wasted as an R&B backing guitarist. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Now, back to the life of Jimi Hendrix. While playing at a New York nightclub, he was noticed by Linda Keith, girlfriend of Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. She was struck by his performance and quickly set about introducing him to Chaz Chandler, former bassist of The Animals and aspiring record producer. Come on, Jimmy. He's right at that corner table. Chaz, over here. Linda, I thought that was you. Mwah. Mwah. Who did you bring me tonight? Chaz, this is Jimmy. I saw him play a set here the other night. He was fab. One of the most amazing guitar players I've ever seen. Amazing, huh? Won't your boyfriend get jealous? Just wait till you hear him play. Hmm, so it's Jimmy, huh? That's right. Linda tells me you can play. I can do a whole lot more than play, brother. Ah, you've got confidence. I like it. In that case, let me lay something on you. You know that Billy Roberts song, Hey Joe? Goes like, uh, Hey Joe. Where are you going with that gun in your hand? No need to hurt yourself, man. I heard it. Well, I think it's a hit. Do you now? With the right artist? Absolutely. What do they call you? Jimmy James. No, 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 no. That's no good. W what are you talking about? It's kind of silly, don't you think? Ma'am, there's no intrigue in Jimmy James. His last name is really Hendrix. Jimmy Hendrix? I can work with that. Maybe we'll change up the spelling a bit, make you seem more, uh, exotic. Ladies love that, right, Linda? <laughs> sure, Chaz. Exotic. I could do exotic. Then do we have a deal? <laughs> I think it's time the world got ready for the Jimi Hendrix experience. Chaz was right. Hey Joe was a hit in the UK, and the Jimi Hendrix experience, as his band was now called, went to tour across the pond. Hey Joe. They were an overnight success. Hendrix followed up Hey Joe with his own songwriting efforts, such as Stone Free, Purple Haze, and The Wind Cries Mary. It was like nothing anyone had ever heard before. He played with guitar feedback, usually seen as an undesirable screeching noise, 
and turned it into a tool to highlight skyrocketing electric solos. His amp was just as much an instrument as his guitar, and he also helped popularize the wah-wah pedal, which gave his music an otherworldly feel. It opened up a whole new world for psychedelic rock. Although Hendrix wrote most of his own music, Hey Joe was far from his last cover. One of his more famous songs today, All Along the Watchtower, was originally a Bob Dylan song. Not to rag on Dylan, but Hendrix made that song. Well, there's a reason why later covers would take more inspiration from Jimmy's version. Mm -hmm. Including later performances by Dylan himself. So influential, he changed the original writer's performance. Now, that's a skill. And the public loved him, too. As great as his music was, he was just as famous for his onstage stunts. Such as setting his guitar on fire at the end of his set. Originally, he had simply smashed his guitar at the end of a performance, but was told that the stunt was too much like The Who. Yeah, so fire was his way of upping the ante. He called it a sacrifice, burning the instrument he loved most in the world in front of thousands of onlookers. And it was always a special event, since he only burned four guitars on stage in the course of his career. Funnily enough, the iconic photo of Hendrix kneeling by the flames of his guitar. The one that's in every stoner's college dorm? <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Was actually a last-minute snap taken by a 17-year-old photographer at one of Hendrix's performances. The last shot of his last roll of film for the day. Wow, and one of the most iconic images of 60s rock. After that stunt, the London press began calling him the vaguely racist nickname Black Elvis and the definitely racist Wild Man of Borneo. But no press is bad press, I suppose, and it was kind of a different time. Hendrix was a bona fide success. The Hendrix Experience's first album, Are You Experienced, flew to the top of the charts. Only blocked from the top spot by Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. His next album, Axis, Bold as Love, was slightly less of a success, but this was due in part because Hendrix lost the master tape for side one of the LP and had to re-record everything. Mm. For a perfectionist mixer like Hendrix, it was a majorly disappointing loss. Keep in mind, this is a guy who would regularly record the same song more than 50 times. And he did a lot of experimenting. He was very interested in science fiction and space during this time, and his music reflected that conceptually he would put reversed guitar solos into his music. Hmm. And one of the first to use a stereophonic panning effect that made it sound like the music was revolving around the listener. His final album, Electric Ladyland, was a return to form, featuring many of his most remembered songs. But such a painstakingly put-together album was a strain on the group. And especially with Hendrix fighting for more and more control over the mixing board. And the Jimi Hendrix experience broke up after Ladyland's release. But Hendrix himself was still at the top of his game. Mm -hmm. In 1969, he was the world's highest paid rock musician. And in August of that year, he was asked to headline what would soon be the most infamous concert in American history, Woodstock.
Although he agreed to perform at Woodstock for less than his usual fee, he was still the highest paid entertainer there and was a huge draw for the event. But despite his star status, Hendrix didn't enjoy playing for huge crowds. And Woodstock's attendance had grown beyond the organizer's wildest dreams. In light of the huge numbers, Hendrix pushed back his performance from midnight on Sunday to 8 a.m. on Monday morning. Monday morning, not a time people usually choose to rock out. In fact, many of the people who stayed only hung out long enough to get a glimpse of Hendrix before making the long, muddy trek home. Yeah, and Hendrix wasn't exactly bright-eyed and bushy-tailed either. By the time he took the stage, he'd been awake for more than three days. With all that working against him, he still played one of the most iconic songs of his career the Star-Spangled Banner, complete with all the fuzz, distortion, and feedback that had made him a household name. And, contrary to popular belief, his playing the national anthem wasn't an act of patriotism. Quite the opposite, in fact. By the summer of 1969, the U.S. had occupied Vietnam for almost a decade and a half, with the number of active troops ballooning out of proportion and showing no sign of stopping. For many young people of the time, faith in America was at a dismal low. Hendrix playing the national anthem for that crowd was an act of rebellion. He was still debating whether or not to play the song as he walked onto the stage that morning. And his manager was afraid he would spark a riot. Hendrix made his decision at the last minute, and in doing, gave the most memorable performance of that fateful weekend. Even so, Woodstock seemed to mark the beginning of the end for Hendrix. Although he drank, smoked, and did drugs for the entirety of his career, the problems with that lifestyle started to become more pronounced in the last year of his life. Alcohol was a particular problem. Like his parents before him, Hendrix was prone to fits of violence and rage when he drank too much, which was more and more often. The life of a musician on tour is hard enough on the body, but the substance abuse only made things worse. Mm. He was constantly exhausted from overwork, stress, and a lack of sleep, which made him incredibly unfocused and frustrated. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll is better as a catchphrase than a working motto. Mm. And things came to a head during one of his shows in Denmark in 1970. Mr. Hendricks, where are you going? Get back here! <sighs> Jimmy, what's going on? You've only been out there for 15 minutes. I just need to take a minute. Were they booing you? What happened out there? Oh, I got tired. I left. You can't just leave. You're the headliner. You need to get back out and... What'd you say? You can't just leave. You're the headliner. You need to get back out and... Mr. Hendricks? Mr. Hendricks? Jimmy, how high are you? Mr. Hendricks, we need you back at... Is he all right? I'm not going back. Tell them the show's canceled. Me? But I... I... Go. If you keep on with all drugs and no sleep, Jimmy, you're going to wind up dead. I've been dead a long time. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Now, back to the life of Jimi Hendrix. After the incident in Denmark, Hendrix made a few more appearances. But his bassist, Billy Cox, had a bad reaction to some LSD and decided to leave the European tour altogether. And things weren't looking great for the rest of the band. Hendrix was dealing with a recording contract dispute in court and was in talks to part ways with the band's current manager. 
It was the end of the Jimi Hendrix experience in more ways than one. Jittery, anxious, and exhausted, Hendrix looked to distract himself by visiting one of his many girlfriends, a German woman living in London by the name of Monica Dannemann. And let me tell you, she's a pretty complex character in herself. Mm-hmm. An ex-figure skater and rock groupie, Dannemann had first met Hendrix the year before when a friend invited her to a concert. After a post-show fling, her infatuation with Hendrix began. She followed his tour to London, apparently unfazed by his sleeping around with several other women at that time. He spent his last few days at her apartment in West London, smoking, drinking, and apparently arguing with her quite a bit. It's hard to tell what really happened between them those last few days, because Daneman was alone with him for most of that time, and her testimony is a bit... Well, spotty. Maybe it was all the drugs, but Dannemann was never able to give a consistent timeline of the time she spent with Hendrix. Mm. She also made several claims that didn't make a lot of sense to the people that knew him. Like, for example, that he had promised to marry her. While we can't know for certain that this was a lie or exaggeration on her part, it seems pretty unlikely considering the constant revolving door of Jimmy's love life. Rock stars and monogamy don't usually mix. Mm, no. And besides, Hendrix and Daneman never spent more than a few days together at a time. Here's what we do know. On the evening of September 17, 1970, Jimi Hendrix took at least one amphetamine called a black bomber at a party. He returned to Monica Daneman's apartment and took nine sleeping pills. That's 18 times the recommended dosage. Right. He likely combined the pills with alcohol and marijuana. As if they weren't dangerous enough on their own. When Daneman woke up the next morning, she noticed that Hendrix was unconscious. Now, here her story diverges. Either she woke up, thought he was sleeping normally, went out to grab cigarettes, and only realized something was wrong when she returned. Or she knew Hendrix was in trouble right away, but delayed getting him to a hospital by calling a friend for help instead. In any case, she finally called an ambulance at 11.18 a.m. on September 18th. Help arrived less than 10 minutes later, but by that point, Daneman was nowhere to be found. She left Hendrix alone in her apartment with the door unlocked and him lying unresponsive in a pool of his own vomit. By the time the paramedics reached him, he was most likely already dead. The vomit had dried around his mouth, so it was nearly impossible to resuscitate him. Still, the doctors tried their best to bring him back. He was taken to the nearest hospital and pronounced dead at 12.45 that afternoon. So where was Daneman in all this? In all likelihood, she was afraid of getting in trouble with the police for the copious amounts of illegal substances they had consumed. On top of that, it was her sleeping pills that led to his coma. But by not calling an ambulance sooner, she may have cost Jimi Hendrix his life. The official cause of death was aspirating his own vomit. The barbiturates he had taken would have suppressed his cough reflex and made it impossible for him to cough or roll over even as he choked to death. Mm. It was an inglorious, messy way to go. And things didn't turn out great for poor Monica Daneman either. In 1996, after defending herself in a court case with one of Hendrix's other longtime girlfriends, Daneman asphyxiated herself in her Mercedes Benz. Because of the amount of sleeping pills he had taken, many people initially believed that Jimi Hendrix had committed suicide as well. He had even apparently left a note. It was this prevailing public theory that would lead another great musician, Kurt Cobain, to commit suicide almost a quarter century later, in emulation of Jimmy's going out in a so-called blaze of glory. 
and joining Jimi Hendrix in the 27 Club. Which, believe me, is not a club you want membership in. As you may have heard in our episode on Kurt Cobain, the 27 Club refers to the striking amount of popular musicians who died, for one reason or another, at age 27. Notably, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and Brian Jones are among their ranks. As well as more recent deaths, like that of Amy Winehouse all dead at the shockingly young age of 27. However, Cobain was wrong in his assumption about Jimi Hendrix's death. It was actually ruled accidental. Hendrix likely just wanted to sleep the night off before he made his return trip to America. And in his already inebriated state, overestimated the amount of pills he would need. Also, the so-called suicide note wasn't a suicide note at all. Written the night before he died, the note was actually Hendrix's final poem, titled The Story of Life. Wow. Its meaning was misinterpreted by the first person to find it. And while it has themes of death, heaven, and rebirth, it's actually a fairly uplifting message. What follows is that poem in its entirety. The story Jesus, so easy to explain. After they crucified him, a woman she claimed his name. The story of Jesus, the whole Bible knows, went all across the desert, and in the middle he found a rose. There should be no questions. There should be no lies. He was married ever happily after all the tears we cry. No use in arguing, all the use to the man that moans. When each man falls in battle, his soul it has to roll. Angels of heaven flying saucers to some made Easter Sunday the name of the rising sun. The story is written by so many people who dared to lay down the truth to so very many who cared to carry the cross of Jesus and beyond. We will guide the light, this time with a woman in our arms. As men, we can't explain the reason why the woman's always mentioned at the moment that we die. All we know is God is by our side. And he says the word, so easy, yet so hard. I wish not to be alone, so I must respect my other heart. Oh, the story of Jesus is the story of you and me. No use in feeling lonely. I am you searching to be free. The story of life is quicker than the wink of an eye. The story of love is hello and goodbye. Until we meet again. Now, we cover a lot of deaths on this show, of people from many different walks of life. But I have to say, it's deaths like Jimi Hendrix that make me the saddest. Yeah, agreed. He was only 27 when he died, and in his short professional career, he completely revolutionized a genre. And just think of what he could have done with another five years, or 10, or 50. It just goes to show that addiction is a very, very powerful thing. And it can take down one of the most celebrated musicians of all time, just as easily as it can an average Joe. And who knows, if Jimi Hendrix had gotten the treatment he needed in time, Maybe he'd still be around today. Even so, he left behind inspiration for so many musicians after him. Keeping his memory alive long after his tragic death. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive. 
Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Famous Fates for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Famous Fates on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Remember, it's a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find the show right here. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to Famous Fates, available exclusively on Spotify.